Costume Drama Rewind, where we're having the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby <laughs> tap dance with Danny freaking K. That's right. We're examining how filmmakers handled some relatively recent history with the 1946 film It's a Wonderful Life and 1954's White Christmas. Until I met Laura, I was pretty sure that everyone in the known universe had seen both of these films. Many times. But since that's clearly not true, or in case it's been a while, let's start with a quick synopsis of each one. It's a Wonderful Life was directed by Frank Capra and stars Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, and Henry Travers. Jimmy Stewart plays George Bailey, a young man living in the small town of Bedford Falls, New York. George is absolutely made of ambition and wants to get out and see the wider world, but through a series of accidents and tragedies, finds himself inexorably tugged into the life of Bedford Falls. He ends up having to run his family's small community bank, trying to help the good people of Bedford Falls find home in a couple of decent rooms and a bath. His nemesis is the greedy banking kingpin, Mr. Potter, who admires George's brains and drive, even though he hates his community spirit. Things come to a head on Christmas Eve, 1945, when an error at the building and loan means that George is facing bankruptcy in prison. Plagued by the belief that he's done nothing worthwhile with his life, he contemplates ending it, only to be rescued by a guardian angel who shows him just how many lives he's touched and saved by showing George what Bedford Falls would have been like without him. George runs home with renewed purpose and spirit to find that the whole town has come through magnificently to rescue him as I drown everyone in my tears. Are you crying now? I might be. (laughs) White Christmas was directed by Michael Curtis, and it stars Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, Vera Ellen, and Dean Jagger. Crosby and Kay play vaudeville performers Bob Wallace and Phil Davis, who became friends while serving together in World War II, and they find stardom in the years afterwards. They make friends with a sister act, Betty and Judy Haynes, and they follow them to the Vermont Ski Lodge, where they're booked to perform for the holidays, primarily because Phil is trying to push Bob and Betty into a relationship. Surprise! The inn is run by Bob and Phil's old commanding general, but it's about to go under from lack of snow and therefore lack of ski bums, and also one suspects from the general's lack of business acumen. (laughs) The foursome teams up to bring in business by staging a Christmas Eve show, while Bob goes one better and seeks to reunite their old unit from the war to show the general that he isn't forgotten. Meanwhile, Bob and Judy do a lot of flirting with Betty and Phil. Through a series of misunderstandings... Betty becomes convinced that Bob's purpose is purely mercenary and in a fit of anger heads off to New York to take on a nightclub job. When she learns the truth, she comes back to take part in the show. And meanwhile, a lot of the general's old division turn up for Christmas Eve and surprise him. The surprise and the snow. (laughs) (laughs) The surprise and the show are smashing successes. (laughs) The general is deeply moved. Bob and Betty, as well as Phil and Judy, admit their love and do some necking right there on the stage. It snows, the whole crew sings White Christmas while wearing fantastic outfits. Everyone's happy, and I cry a lot. Again. Still. Perpetually. (laughs) So, first impressions. I'm pretty sure this has all just been one giant plot to get me to see the Christmas movies that I hadn't watched before. Last year, it was Love Actually. This time, it was these two movies. So anyway, they're both fine, cute, seasonally appropriate, etc. 
I do think that White Christmas could have been, like, 20 minutes shorter, though. Slightly alternate take, skating right over your wrongness there. (laughs) I think this has actually been the year of me inducting you into all of my priceless family traditions. We did The Mouse on the Mayflower last month. White Christmas is one that we've watched every year since I was very tiny, and that my dad has vivid memories of seeing at the Hippodrome Theater in Baltimore the year it premiered. I wonder what family tradition I can get you into next year. We always watch Dolly Parton's Best Little Whorehouse in Texas at Thanksgiving, and that has lots of history. Sold. Yes. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. Both of these films actually have interesting origin stories, and both are based on other creative works. White Christmas, of course, started with a song. It's interesting that the best-selling Christmas recording of all time was written by a Jewish composer, but Irving Berlin once recounted in an interview how, as an eight-year-old growing up in New York City, he was introduced to Christmas traditions by his Irish Catholic neighbors, the O'Hara's, and it left a lifelong impression on him. He wrote White Christmas in 1940, pouring into it his memories of the O'Hara's celebrations. When Bing Crosby first performed the song live at Christmas time 1941, it didn't get much notice. America was only a few weeks past Pearl Harbor and distracted by war, but months later, when the song was featured in the movie Holiday Inn, it became a smash hit. Holiday Inn starred Crosby and Fred Astaire and dealt with two innkeepers putting on a Christmas show, in case that sounds familiar. It would, of course, be remade as White Christmas just a decade later. During the war, the song became incredibly popular with American GIs missing home during the holidays, and filmmakers hoped to capitalize on that by incorporating that experience into the remake. But the emotions that it evoked were real and profound. In an interview in 2016, Crosby's nephew Howard described how, late in the war, Bing tried to eliminate the song from his shows because he thought it was just too painful. In Howard's words, quote, In December 1944, He was in a USO show with Bob Hope and the Andrews sisters in northern France. He had to stand there and sing White Christmas with 100,000 GIs in tears without breaking down himself. Of course, a lot of those boys were killed in the Battle of the Bulge just a few days later. Oh gosh, are you crying now? (sighs) Are you not? (laughs) The origin story for It's a Wonderful Life is less emotionally fraught, but just as interesting. It actually started out as a short story written by Philip Van Doren Stern, a historian and author who during the war served as a member of the planning board of the United States Office of War Information and as general manager for the Armed Services Editions, which published versions of popular books that were resized to fit in the pockets of military uniforms. In 1943, he wrote a short story called The Greatest Gift, inspired by Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. He managed to get it published in several magazines, including Good Housekeeping, and sent it as a pamphlet to about 200 friends. One of those was the actor Cary Grant, who passed it along to the filmmaker Frank Capra, who bought the motion picture rights in 1945 for $10,000, and the rest is movie history. Granted, White Christmas is a romantic comedy, but it does have a rather nostalgic view of World War II and military service, which makes total sense. The Humanities Washington blog says that World War II has become sacrosanct in the American collective memory, which we see through the movie, with the friendships between Danny Kay and Bing Crosby, along with those in their division, the I Wish I Were Back in the Army song, and everyone coming to celebrate General Waverly at the end. When I was doing some research for this episode, I came across an interesting discussion on Reddit. Someone was asking about whether Waverly's forcibly ended military career, a song about in What to Do with the General, was common for other officers, and another person in the thread who said that their thesis in college was about post-war Hollywood's depictions of World War II had an interesting take. From a cultural standpoint, 
General Waverly is used in the film as a way to reminisce about the past. The very year after White Christmas in 1955 came It's Always Fair Weather, a dreadfully melancholic comedy about GI reintegration at the end of the Second World War. The film depicts three American GIs who come home with big dreams. When they reunite ten years later, they hate one another and have become disillusioned. The middle 1950s was a time of self-reflection in which many Americans wished they could go back to the simple patriotism and unification that was felt during the Second World War. Because of this, the melancholic modern soldier who feels lost and alone in the world became a stock character. When you talk about nostalgia, the thing that really pulls these movies together is that they both revolve around historical events that were, at the time of filming, extremely close in the rearview mirror. Much of the ending of It's a Wonderful Life deals with the end of the war, and then it was released for awards consideration in December 1946 and to the general public in January 1947. So that's a gap of, what, 16 months? Think of where you were 16 months ago, essentially your early pandemic self, and of settling down right now to watch a movie that includes that period of time. It would feel incredibly visceral, right? Even earlier events depicted in the film, from the Spanish flu to the Depression, would have felt fairly vivid in people's memories and close in time. I don't think I'm alone, by the way, in not realizing until this time last year that it was in fact the Spanish flu pandemic in which Mr. Gower loses his college-age son at the start of the film, and that was a gut punch in December 2020, let me tell you. So it also goes with White Christmas, released in 1954, just nine short years after the end of the war. If you think back to 2012, again, you know that there's not a lot of emotional distance in that space of time. So that's the baggage that both the production teams and audiences would have been carrying with them for both films. Soldiers returning from World War II were generally treated as heroes, and they got better treatment than World War I veterans. Soldiers coming back from World War I didn't get any special government treatment, whereas millions of World War II vets used the GI Bill of Benefits, which covered college tuition and provided low-interest mortgages. However, many Black veterans were denied these benefits. If you listened to our episode about the butler back in February, you might remember us mentioning that several mail carriers refused to deliver GI Bill-related mail to Black vets. And this discrimination was by design. One of the drafters of the GI Bill legislation, John Rankin, who's also known for supporting Japanese internment, segregation, not letting non-whites donate to the same blood banks in the war, and opposing interracial marriage made sure that the states were in charge of handling GI benefits, which meant Jim Crow law in Southern states thwarted most Black veterans from being able to make the most of their benefits. But this was also the case in plenty of Northern states, too. A New York Times Magazine article notes that another aspect of the racism that they faced was unequal access to better jobs. Regardless of getting training in numerous trades during the war, many state employment agencies refused to connect Black veterans with skilled jobs. General Waverly's being frozen out of a continued military career and being stuck with the inn is portrayed in White Christmas as this romanticized opportunity for Bing and Danny to save the day. But this was reality, albeit even worse, for thousands of Black vets, with lasting impact. So, as Crosby and Kay sing towards the end of the movie, there's a lot to be said for the Army. And there's also a lot to be said for how It's a Wonderful Life handles banking history. First, the movie reflects an important truth for the 1930s as well as today, that people often fundamentally fail to grasp just how banking works. George is able to head off a run on the Bailey Building alone by putting in his honeymoon fund, but the idea that earlier deposits have been loaned out to earn investment income, rather than just sitting in the vault, is a difficult one for the good people of Bedford Falls to grasp. 
Most of us know that runs on banks were common during the Great Depression, but the year after George and Mary Bailey's wedding, President Roosevelt did sign legislation creating the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which would have at least saved the Baileys from sacrificing their honey fund to prop up the bank. It's not clear whether the bank examiner, however, would have accepted the outpouring of community support from Bedford Falls to balance the bank's books at the end of the movie. His job was to audit the bank for any potential fraud or mismanagement, especially as he most likely would have been an employee of the FDIC and responsible to the federal government. At any rate, according to a memo issued by the FBI in 1947, and I quote, the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to sources, is a common trick used by communists. So there you have it, I guess. Finally, a few sundry other notes. So I think we can all agree that A, the choreography number in White Christmas is really weird. So weird. <laughs> And B, it did not need to be included. Not true. You're wrong. It also reminded me of Audrey Hepburn's beatnik dance in the 1957 movie Funny Face. But turns out this whole segment is just making fun of Martha Graham, who was a major part of the modern dance movement and her choreography style, which is just really mean-spirited. I mean, yeah, I'll give you that. Especially at Christmas. According to White Christmas, one of the best parts about serving the army was getting to see Jolson Hope and Benny all for free. That line was actually changed to edit out the name Crosby, which would have been a neat little bit of breaking the fourth wall. But I want to talk about Bob Hope, because it's hard to overstate how much he meant to American service members in the second half of the 20th century. From 1941 to 1991, he made 57 tours with the United Service Organization, the USO, to entertain American soldiers serving abroad, often in active combat zones and sometimes in situations of great danger. My dad has incredibly fond memories of meeting Hope's plane at Christmas 1969 when the tour came to the Karat Royal Thai Air Base. Hope was accompanied on that tour by Anne Margaret, who gave dad a kiss on the cheek, and by former LA Rams player Rosie Greer, who today is perhaps better known as Bobby Kennedy's bodyguard. At any rate, it remains one of the highlights of dad's life, and I think most any veteran will tell you how much it meant to have someone visit bringing greetings from home and a little bit of fun. Relatedly, quite a few well-known actors and entertainers served in World War II, even some who were already famous at the time they enlisted. That's something that's winked at at the beginning of White Christmas when it's mentioned that Bob is already a vaudeville star. Among those who served in various capacities, either in the military or in civilian intelligence and resistance roles, were Clark Gable and Leslie Howard, Paul Newman, Audrey Hepburn, Josephine Baker, Ronald Reagan, and yes, Jimmy Stewart, who eventually retired from the Air Force Reserve as a Brigadier General. Dad also got to meet him in the late 60s, when Stewart was on a tour of bases in the Southwest. He did not ask my dad if he wanted the moon, because he'd throw a rope around it and pull it down. Much to my disappointment. And finally, snow. Snow is a major part of both movies, and this was a time when movie special effects were changing and getting more sophisticated. At the time, the industry standard was to use cornflakes painted white, but this was loud. It's a Wonderful Life tried something new, which was combining water, soap flakes, sugar, and a chemical called fomite, which is sort of like what you find in modern fire extinguishers. By the time we get around to White Christmas, they were using asbestos for snow, which seems not great. Not great. But we have lots of entries for our ongoing actor count. The following is my all-time favorite piece of useless trivia. I feel it's important for as many people as possible to know that Mary Wicks, who plays the inn's busybody housekeeper Emma, 
was on March in the 1994 version of Little Women. Of course, if you listened to our Joe March Madness series last spring, <clears throat> nudge, 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 you'd already know that. But I'm going to keep saying it until everyone knows it. Mary Bayless is a background character in both It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas. Ellen Corby was a supporting character in It's a Wonderful Life and the 1949 version of Little Women. But the weirdest actor count factoid this episode is that the alfalfa kid, Carl Switzer, makes an uncredited appearance in It's a Wonderful Life during the gym dance sequence. He's the guy who hits on Mary. And his photo is used as the picture of Benny Haynes. Freckle-faced Haynes? The dog-faced boy? Yeah, that is pretty weird. Finally, since a new version of West Side Story is out in theaters, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that George Chakras, the dance captain in White Christmas, would go on to win an Academy Award for playing Bernardo in the 1961 film version of West Side Story. So now on to the big question. How many sequined Santa hats are we awarding to each film? So, even though I insulted both movies the entire time we were watching them, Grinch, I will go with... Four sequin Santa hats for these two movies. Scrooge. (laughs) They both have good storytelling, and they were pretty enjoyable to watch, I will give you that. But with White Christmas in particular, I really like the part where they're in Florida and the girls are performing for all the tourists that came down for the winter, mostly because I like 1950s Florida kitsch, but also for some more personal reasons. Florida has long been a destination for Northerners escaping the cold. And back in the 20s and the 30s, my grandfather's family would head down to Marion County every winter. And that's how he met my grandmother, who was a Florida native. Oh, I mean, despite the fact that It's a Wonderful Life is apparently a communist propaganda film, and that White Christmas tried to give all their actors mesothelioma, they may be entitled to compensation. Is there any choice but to award each one a full five-sequence Santa hats? These films are iconic pieces of American culture, and despite having seen each one upwards of 25 times, they have never ever failed to make me laugh and cheer and sob and sometimes do all three at the exact same time, which I've been assured looks really scary. Yes, it does. If I'd knock a point off either one, it would be off White Christmas for not getting General Waverly, who is the personification of Old Codger Charm, together with Emma the Housekeeper, who is clearly deeply devoted to him. That would be cute. It would. Missed opportunity. If they ever remake it. But on that note, thanks for joining us for this episode of Costume Drama Rewind. We wish you all happy holidays, and we'll see you back here in January. (laughs) 